Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast presented by Lancaster Archery Supply. For all your bow hunting needs, visit LancasterArchery.com. We've got the gear, we've got the knowledge, we've got the passion. Well, we're right here in the middle of summer uh, as we're recording this podcast episode, the time when people are really starting to think in earnest about deer season. And I'm, I'm super excited to have a very special guest. We have Darren Williams, who shot a tremendous buck where he lives in Kansas last year. Darren, take some. thank you for taking time to, to join us on the podcast. You have a great story. It sounds like you're busy working right now, but you just dumped in the truck to help record this episode. Yeah, uh, we got a little rain last night here on the farm that we do that we needed really, really bad. And so uh, it's no problem to take a little time this morning and talk about what happened. It's been a crazy ride for sure. Yeah. And, you know, we hear of a lot of tremendous bucks and a lot of great stories, but yours really caught my attention because it's so unique. You own a farm in, in Kansas. You're, you're a farmer. And uh, but the interesting thing is um, the vast majority of your land is cropland or open land. You have very, very little in the way of woods. Um, yes. And, and you know, uh, going back to uh, spring of 2022, you found a pretty tremendous shed, uh, ended up with an incredible buck on the ground. But I'm going to let you take it from here. Tell me how this got started. Uh, this buck that you got, it had 23 or 24 points. It wasn't a buck that you were aware of. But how does the story begin? Uh, basically, I knew that there was a giant deer in the area just from stories other hunters in the area had been talking about. But I had no idea that it was using our property to get from point A to point B, there was two blocks of timber on each side of our farm. And uh, I had never laid eyes on it, really didn't know much about it. And about two miles away, I was uh, spreading fertilizer that, that early March. And I came across a pretty good sized shed. And of course, when I got out and picked it up and I saw what it was, I was like, this has got to be this buck everybody's been talking about. So I called a good friend of mine, Travis Sipe. He also runs a outfitter here out of Waverly Outfitter business, uh, mainly for, for good duck and goose hunting, but he also takes on some deer hunters. And uh, once I showed him the shed, he's like, yeah, I'm going to have to let you in on the whole story now. <laughs> so if I hadn't have found that shed, we might not have heard too much about that deer, but uh, Travis is a good dude and a good friend of mine. And uh, that's really where the story starts is me finding that shed, you know, when I was spreading some fertilizer that morning. Yeah. Now you are a pretty avid deer hunter, but we're talking about your your, your farm. Um, you had this big uh, open, I don't know what you told me, it was 150, 140 acres, um, but you had a starting point because you had a, a deer that were traveling your fence line. Uh, but right. how did you come up with a way to ambush them or attract them where you can get a shot at them? So we bought this property, my dad and I bought this property uh, approximately four years ago. And I had some neighbors tell me, man, you ought to set a tree stand back up in there behind that pond. He goes, I, I used to hunt that place and there's a big giant deer running in there. And I'm like, it's only three or four acres of brushy timber around this pretty good sized pond. And I'm like, you know, when you look at the property, it's not a place you're going to buy to deer hunt. I mean, it's a place you're going to buy at a farm because it's almost 95% tillable. And uh, that's, you know, as a farmer, that's what you want. You want the least amount of trees and brush as you can find. But anyway, after I found the shed and, and Travis let me know this buck was using my fence line, I just, there was no good setup along the property line. And I thought I have got to get that deer comfortable in here to like when he's cruising through here and getting a drink, he'll stay in here longer than just 
get a drink, hit the fence line, and then get back into the brush. So that's where and I, I brought that uh, brush cutter for my skid steer. I thought, you know, if I could just make a, a wider lane in this brush and make it kind of come out over on the backside of this pond, I could put a seven or eight acre food plot in there after I uh, harvest the oats that I grew there for a cash crop. Uh-huh. But I could put a seven or eight acre food plot in there and, and just give him a reason to mill around in there, just hoping that he would come in there and check some does one night or something, you know, just giving him, trying to give him more of a reason to stay on the property longer. Because like I say, I did not have a, you know, I didn't have 20 acres of timber or anything like that. And uh, so I used that brush cutter to create a staging area behind the blind. I also cut that lane uh, from the deer trail I found they were using along the fence line. And I it probably angled onto the property 100 yards or so, you know, kind of winding through around the backside of that pond dam. And then it came out in front of my redneck blind. And uh, little did I know at the time that that's what he would end up coming on and walking right in front of my blind at eight yards for the shot. Now, let, let's touch on that a little bit. You put a food pot in last summer um, and that grew up and it started to sort of be you had you had a little bit of woods. You had a pond and then you had this food plot of seven or eight acres. So essentially you'd created uh, an oasis, believe it or not. But you, you we oh. jumped over something that was really important. You cut a, I think you told me it was six or seven um, feet wide, a lane through your property. And that sort of became a funnel for you. Talk a little bit about that because you had a, a, a small patch of woods, but you sort of created a travel pathway for these deer that end up being really oh. advantageous. Well, two things, obviously deer like the, you know, everybody knows deer like the path of least resistance, just like human beings do, you know, like we do as hunters, when we're walking through the timber, we don't pick the thickest, absolute nastiest stuff to walk through. And I just thought if we could just, just make a travel corridor here to where these deer feel comfortable milling. And basically it got them onto my property about a hundred yards from the property line. So I didn't have to set up on the property line. I was set up about a hundred yards off the property line on the backside of this pond. And we had a really bad drought, dry spell in the summer. And so that that water turned out to be a, a huge deal because it was a big enough pond. It didn't go dry. But then I mowed the brush back behind my blind off to the left side, and that created an unbelievable staging area. And that's what surprised me a lot is the staging area that I created there for the bucks to make scrapes. And just basically they would get up out of the other draws off the property next to me. They would come up into the backside of my blind, get a drink, and then they would just mill around behind me in that staging area. And they'd come out of the brush where I could see them and they'd walk up to the edge of the field and they'd check that food plot out. And then they would just kind of disappear back into the timber and go bed up wherever. And uh, I had sat in there about four different times during the season and had seen several young bucks do that and, you know, several does, but I had always envisioned him coming off the neighbor's property about 400 yards out in front of me and walking to the food plot, turning broadside at a 45 or 55 yard shot is how we envision it happening. If it happened, you know, Yep. and this deer was not patternable. He was like a ghost. I mean, he would show, I mean, I might've had 10 pictures of him on my trail cam and they were always at, at night. They were never in the daylight. And you never knew when he would show up or when he wouldn't be there. And so this was not a situation where we just, we knew he would be there. You know, we, this truly was a ghost of a deer, of a buck. 
to try to kill. I mean, I, I really didn't have any uh, anything to go on as far as patterning. Uh, but we knew if we had that food plot, we knew when the rut kicked around, if we were just lucky enough to get him to come up to the edge of that timber one night, we might get to see him. And that's what I was hoping for more than anything was just to get to see him in real life so we could actually see what we thought he was. Yeah, and you mentioned that you um, traditionally hunt with the bow, but uh, work yes. kept you pretty busy last year. You're talking about you might need to do a 45-yard shot, so you uh, got a raven, and you started to hunt with the raven um, because you thought that might be a longer-range shot. But it, it turns out it really it really wasn't, but you don't know. You try to prepare as best you can um, uh, for the situation. But, you know, when we're talking about this buck, I have to tell you guys, uh, everybody listening to the podcast, this was a deer that grossed um, 236 and 5.8s, and the net was 230. And, um, and you were using a raven, so it's a crossbow. Um, so it goes into the Boone and Crockett record books, and it's probably one of the top 50 bucks ever taken in Kansas. But uh, um, let's talk about uh, when you finally got a chance to hunt this deer um, and get a realistic shot. I think you told me that was mid-November. Was that fateful night for that deer? Walk us yeah. through that. Well, I think it was November 16th. It was on a Wednesday evening. And uh, he had disappeared. We didn't have any trail cam photos of him for about three weeks. I'd pretty much given up on him. Tried to stay in the fight with him. I mean, I, I farmed 2,000 acres, so we're combining soybeans and corn. And, you know, obviously trying to make a living and work was getting in the way. And I knew I had this giant deer. I don't run an outfitter's uh, camp or anything, but I do have some good friends that hunt with me out of state and I was trying to get them on their deer. And I think we had six or seven guys in our camp throughout the season. And I had gotten five of the seven guys, their, their biggest buck uh, ever it happened to be this year. I got them their biggest buck ever got them on it. They actually did the, did the job of killing them. But anyway, I had, was just tired and, uh, kind of starting to give up on this deer. And then that morning of the 16th, I believe it was at 5 a.m., we got a picture of him walking by our uh, trail cam, our tactic cam, and he was by himself. And that was critical because I thought he's been a lockdown. He's got a doe with him. He's never going to show up. And that morning he showed up by himself walking by that camera. And the wind was just perfect that afternoon. It was cold. It just was one of them days where you're like, I just got to be in that stand. Yeah. So we uh, <laughs> we parked the combine. My hired help looked at me and he said, what are we doing? And I said, you're going home early and I'm going to the deer woods. I said, this is a deer of a lifetime. And I said, I'll kill myself if I don't. If I don't go into that blind tonight and at least try knowing that he was there at 5 a.m. Hopefully he's just laid up, bedded up uh, in the draw near us and he'll come back out and get a drink and maybe go up to that food plot and check out some does, you know, that's just, my, that was just my only hope. And, uh, so that's how it unfolded. You know, I took the ranger over there, walked on in. I'd seen a couple of real nice bucks chasing does on the drive over there that night, about 10 miles away from my farm. And uh -huh. it's just one of the magical evenings, you know, the rut was on, it was cold. The wind was blowing about 15 miles out of the right direction and you know the story unfolds from there uh several young bucks well two young bucks anyway chasing does that night out in front of me in the food plot and the night's unfolding and that you know i'm not seeing him but you know it's just one of them crisp evenings and 
Next thing I know, that big eight-pointer that was out in front of me, he he was ready for a fight, and he went on full alert, and he was looking right through the stand. I was in a 10-foot elevated stand, redneck blind, and I thought, man, he is looking at something. What's he looking at? And I turned around, and there he was, standing 15 yards away from my blind, and I'm going to tell you, I wish I could put it into words what it looked like when I saw looked down on that set of antlers. He was dogging a doe right behind me at 15 yards. So to know that I had seen him in real life for the first time and to know yep. that he was there in the timber with me on that little five acres and to know that just to know that I actually had a legitimate shot at this dude maybe coming by my blind in a little while was about more than I could handle. Uh, he disappears behind me. I see him for 15 seconds. He's dogging that doe. That eight-pointer won't leave. He's out in front of me in the food plot. He keeps looking farther to my left, and I'm just sure you can see this buck pushing that doe in there. And I don't know, maybe three or four or five minutes goes by, and that doe starts coming down that lane that I originally yeah. cut, first started talking about that I cut with my brush cutter. And then then it all set in on me that there's 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 a chance he's going to come down that lane. So she comes down the lane. The mode path comes right out in front of my blind and walks directly away from me. And I thought, okay, there's he's going to walk right out there. He's going to go out there. He's going to turn broadside. There's my 45, 55 yard shot. You know, this is how, how it's going to unfold, hopefully. I mean, that's the you only know, I'm telling myself. And he doesn't show up. She goes on out there and mills around. That eight pointer uh -huh. pushes her on. And I'm like, crap, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Now that man, he just went off into the neighbors and I'm never going to see him again. But that eight pointer wouldn't leave the field. And he just kept looking behind me and looking behind me. And I was like, that dude's got to be in the timber here. And about the time I said that, I looked over to my left and I could see his antlers on the ground sniffing, you know, smelling everywhere that doe walked. He was walking right behind her. And when he picked his head up and he committed to come down that lane, that's when it all got real. <laughs> That's when the nerves set in. And I thought, you know, this is like the Super Bowl. Let's win this thing while we're here. Let's win it. Let's kill this dude. And uh, so I was preparing for him to walk, you know, right around the corner. And he stopped on, I'm going to say he was 12 yards away when he stopped behind the cedar tree. And all I could see was his nose and the front tips of his main beams. And he was just standing there surveying the food plot, looking around. He never one time looked up at my blind, not one time. And so that's when the, I mean, my heart rate was going out of my, you know, chest. I mean, it's crazy. And uh, everybody says, don't look at the antlers, you know, when you take the shot. Well, I'm, this dude's 12 yards away and I'm up in a blind. How are you supposed to not look at the antlers? Uh, and when he did step out from around that cedar tree, he stopped for about five seconds. And when I got my first real good look at him in the open with no obstructions, I knew right away this deer was world class and I knew he was bigger than what we thought he was. You know, I was trying to tell myself from the trail cam photos, he's probably 215, 216, knowing in my heart that he might be 235. And uh, when I saw him standing there before I took the shot, I said to myself, he's 230. He's every bit of 235, most likely. And uh, 
So to my amazement, he doesn't follow the doe. He turns and he goes right and he goes parallel right in front of my blind. He's so close, I can't stop him. And so when I reached over on the crossbow, I had it uh, clamped in a bog uh, tripod. Yeah. He was so close, I couldn't see him when I looked in the scope. All I could see was the inside edge of my redneck blind. And I thought, crap, what am I going to do? I can't, I can't get the, I can't get the bow unhooked here because it's going to make too much noise. He's so close. So I just made a split second decision. I stuck my hand down on the bog, picked the whole thing up with my left hand, stood up out of my seat about eight inches, leaned forward just a little bit and shot. I just put the scope on, you know, the crosshairs on his heart just a little bit low because he was so close. Yeah. I didn't even stop him. I let him walk. He was just walking real slow and I drilled him. And uh, when I saw him hop, skip and jump over there to my left and he stopped and then he bolted out there into the food plot about 30 yards and he, he rocked one time to his right and then slammed himself down into the ground and he laid there dead within 30 seconds after I shot, you know, pulled the trigger. That's, I wish I could completely describe the feeling of, uh, of keeping it all together, making the shot, and then realizing that we had accomplished something really special. It was it was just phenomenal. Uh, it, it's like the pinnacle of my deer hunting career, for sure. And I have to tell you, it's, a, it's an incredible story from start to finish, but I think the most amazing thing is how you quickly improvised to get that shot off with that deer being that close. I think you told me, we had talked about this a little bit previously, that the deer was probably eight to 10 yards away when you took that shot. So you couldn't oh, yeah. do a lot with your situation. He so. was eight yards. He was not walking fast. He would take a step and stop. And it really showed me how we created such a safe haven for him. He didn't look at the, he, he was not in panic at all. He didn't look at the blind. He was in his home element. All he was doing, you know what I really think he was doing? I don't think he was going to go out in that food plot. I think he circled around in front of my blind and he was going to go to the right and go back and get a drink and go back to his bedding area. I really, he just, he wasn't chasing those does. He was just kind of dogging them a little bit. He didn't, he wasn't going to go out there and mess with that eight pointer. And by the way, that eight pointer wasn't in no business. I mean, when this dude walked up the edge of the timber, they, all them them young bucks, they just turned around and walked to the other end of the food plot. It's like, it's like when this dude stepped up there, they're like, "Nah, we're we're not even messing with him." So he just was in his own element. It's not he was not spooked. He didn't hop, skip, and bolt or sniff me or you know blow at us. It was just amazing, and to know that we had a, you know, a lot of people think I dumped a pile of corn out and. I patterned him and I just went in my blind sipping my coffee that night and I shot him. <laughs> uh, that's not what happened. <laughs> and that's why your st story is so amazing. You had to put a lot of hard work in to get to that point. Did it unfold that night almost perfectly? Probably. But look at all the work you had to put in to get to that point. You had to create a situation where you could draw the deer in. You had to develop that shooting lane, which helped to sort of funnel them by the blind you had the water there, but you had to put food plots. And there's a lot of hard work you had to do in those months leading up to that, even though you knew the deer was there. And then, of course, you had to have sort of the luck to have it come by that night while you were sitting there. But you also, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about, you really only hunted that stand when the wind was absolutely perfect. You weren't oh, yeah. in there trying to get 10 sits on that stand. Oh, a couple things. 
that come to mind here while we're talking about this, the work that started was that in March when I found that shed. I was supposed to plant soybeans. Soybeans were in my rotation to plant on that farm. Well, there's soybeans and corn all around that deer, all you know, all during the growing season. And I told myself that deer's got to have something else to eat besides corn and soybeans. He needs a special reason to be on my property. Is why I was was my mentality. And I've done a lot of work with cover crops through no-till and the regenerative uh, framework of our farm over the last 10 years. And so, you know, the experience I've seen with some of the cover crop mixes I put together, the warm season mixes and stuff um, in my other food plots on other farms, it, it gave me the ability to know that if I could put something special together on that seven or eight acres, that he would know that there was something besides corn and beans to come eat if he wanted it. And um, so we kicked the soybean plan off to the side and I had a contract to grow some oats for a cover crop seed company. And I knew those oats could be harvested the 1st of July. Well, then that gives me that whole, uh, the rest of July, August, first part of September to have options on a food plot. And so option number one was to put a warm season mix in there which would have consisted of sedan grass, sunflowers, uh, millet, and then probably cow peas and maybe a few turnips. Something along that line was what I planned on putting in there. But we had a drought and we didn't have enough moisture to get it up out of the ground. And so we waited and they had a rain schedule, finally got a rain there towards the end of August. Well, by then it's too late for your warm season mixes. You need to start thinking cool seeds and mixes like wheat or rye or triticale, something along those lines. And so I got a triticale pea mix from uh, Green Cover Seeds uh, down here in Iola, Kansas. And we went in there and it was about three weeks early to do it. But I knew if we got the moisture, we needed to get that. that I, I had to get green out of the ground. Let's put it that way. I had yeah. to get something out. And I was willing to risk it all for this deer. and. So we went in there and we drilled that food plot. I'm saying the so maybe the middle of August or the 20th of August. We normally don't do that with our cool season stuff till about the 15th of September. But I went ahead and rolled the dice. It rained. It came up. Then we got a few more rains through the first part of September, and it really took off. And the night that I killed that deer, that triticale was about eight inches tall out in that food plot. And if I would have waited to plant that food plot, the end of September, 1st of October, it wouldn't even have been up tall enough for the deer to be out there grazing on it. So versatility and being able to adapt on the fly is one of the things that killed that deer or gave us the chance to kill it, I guess is what I should say. And uh, so I was flexible enough to change my crop rotation because soybeans won't get harvested around here till middle of October. And then you drill wheat in there and the wheat only gets up about an inch and a half tall. And I didn't have time for that. I needed to try to, my plan was to kill that deer during muzzleloader season. Well, during muzzleloader season, it was hot and dry. We were harvesting corn and I never got a chance to go out there and hunt him with the black powder. So then we moved into archery season and I was so busy trying to get everybody else their deer and get our crops harvested. And, you know, my dad passed away almost two years ago, this upcoming August. And so, you know, we had a lot of things just trying to, deal with just just life in general so we were just super busy and i didn't have the time to practice with my compound the way i need to to make that ethical shot at 45 50 yards and i've got a matthews bow that i've 
killed a lot of good deer with and that's kind of my thing i'm i'm a compound bow hunter yeah. type guy uh but again i needed to adapt if i was going to try to kill this deer and we needed to try to do it during archery season and i had seen a few of my friends using some ravens and killing some deer with them and i thought you know if i'm going to make an ethical shot maybe i can make it at 50 yards with one of these crossbows so I did some research and went and got the, I believe it's the X-29 or the R-29 sniper Raven crossbow and took some shots with it and got it all dialed in and set up. And I felt real comfortable at 50 yards. Now, had I known he was going to walk in there at eight yards that night, I obviously would have had my Matthews with me, but uh, you don't get to switch her up in the middle of the hunt like that. So. No. I was willing to try to use a crossbow to make an ethical shot on the deer. I, I was not going to lob a, and I wouldn't have done it on a six pointer. I wasn't going to lob an arrow out there that I wasn't confident in making an ethical shot. So that's what it boils down to in my choice to use the crossbow that night. Uh -huh. I was going to make an ethical shot, whether it was eight yards or 55 yards, and I was not going to wound this deer. Uh, we were going to make an ethical shot and put him on the ground if we could. Yeah. Now you have this deer and you, and, and you, you did all this work leading up to it. The deer is laying dead in the, in the, uh, the food plot area. Tell me a little bit about what you thought when you walked up to that deer, because obviously it was bigger than you even thought. And then, and if you can talk a little bit about the rack, cause it literally had points going everywhere. I mean, what huh. was the size of the rack, the spread? Talk a little bit about that. But first, what did you think when you walked up to that? Cause it actually fell over with an eyesight of you, didn't it? Or pretty close I to it? I could see it. Yeah, I could see it laying in the food plot. He was kind of facing me and uh well that's when i lost lost it i mean i was by myself in the blind that night but you could have heard me screaming and jumping and carrying on in the blind for probably two miles away but uh uh i tried to get a hold of travis because travis you know he was trying to help me keep track of the deer and he had clients in the area hunting that deer too so it wasn't just me hunting that deer there was other people hunting him and he knew I was in the blind that night and he knew I had seen it on my camera that morning. And so he happened to be pretty close in the area on the going down the road when I called him and told him I just got him on the ground. And I told him, I said, man, you got to get back here. I said, he's way bigger than we all think he is. And of course he was wound up. He drives in there and we both walk up to it at the same time. And it was just high fives. You know, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. We knew as far as the rack goes, he's not going to blow you away with like real widespread or the longest main beams you've ever seen, or even the longest tines you've ever seen, but he has long tines. He has good main beam length. I think I, I should have grabbed my score sheet, but I think he was 16, 16 and a half inches wide, you know? Uh, but you know, he's just got mass throughout. I mean, the bases, I think they're six and a half, seven inches around. Um, give me a second here. I should have grabbed my score sheet, but I think I'm going off of memory, but I think we're around 65 or 68 inches total of non-typical points when uh -huh. you add them all up. So it's like having another third of another deer in this dude. I think when they scored him as a typical uh 10 pointer he was around 170 
and then you add in all the non-typical inches of antler there. Um, his brow tines are as long a brow tines as I've ever seen. Um, one side has, I think, one brow tine. He's got three points. They're split. Um, it, it's just, he's a bit of a compact deer, you know, to the guys who know their racks. He's not the widest deer you've ever seen. He's a bit compact, but he is loaded. And the fact that he only had basically six inches of deduction yeah. is incredible for a non-typical deer that has that many points. And the fact that he wasn't all broken up in the middle of November. We figured by the time we got the archery season, if we didn't get him killed in black powder or the first couple of weeks of archery, we thought it was going to be all busted up. And he only had one little chip of an antler chipped off. And that was it. He's got a, a spade looking antler that almost looks like a cactus or a spade. Uh, he, he just, you know, when you look at him, he's just got points going everywhere, but they're thick. Thick's a good way to describe him. He's got thick main beams. He's got thick mass and his tines when they branch off, they're not like number two pencils. They're more like carrots. I mean, they're thick and uh, he's got a lot of them. Yeah. The character is absolutely incredible, you know, and, and, and I know you have a lot going on here. So I just had one last question for you. When you take a deer that's well over 200 inches, what's next for you? I mean, what's your next goal or is it just that you love archery hunting so much? It doesn't really matter to you. Uh, it doesn't matter. Of course, you want to kill the biggest deer you can, uh, you know, as a deer hunter. So I don't know what's next for me. We'll keep doing what we'll keep doing, you know, what we've been doing. Um, I do know that when I look at 180 class deer now, it doesn't look as big as it used to. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, season after I killed that deer, I remember. After I killed that deer that night, about a week later, I saw a 180, 185 class 10-pointer along the road chasing a doe. And I'm like, man, that dude's not, not very big. And my buddy was with me. He says, what are you talking about? It's a 185. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, 185. Yeah, I need to get back into the frame of mind that, look, you're not going to kill a 230-inch deer every year. Or you may not even ever see another deer over 200 inches. But uh, yeah. for me, it's about the the fun of uh having you know good friends i take uh, kids from our church mm -hmm. um i try i've got some folks at our church that are meat eaters they like to kill does and so at the end of the season during our bonus doe season and try to help us control our doe population i try to get people out there and you know i've tried to use you know my dad was an was a good dude he wasn't a big hunter and i tried to get him into the woods and teach him about deer hunting and i actually got him i actually videoed his last deer hunt and we were able to play it at the funeral and it is just a special thing that my dad helped us put this land together i manage it and i farm it but um sharing it with other people getting kids involved in the outdoors having some buddies that to come and help me get the food plots planted and help me get the blinds set up and help me run the cameras and you know i always we try to video all our that's one thing we haven't talked about in the story here i video almost all my deer hunts uh -huh. and i didn't have any help with me that night to carry all my gear in and i just didn't have enough room and i thought you know what i just i have to leave the camera home tonight and then i got in the blind and i'm like what if he shows up what are you gonna do you're gonna let him walk and then try to get on him again 
with a deer camera because you got to get this deer on video. Well, I'm going to tell you guys, when he walked in and he was eight yards from my blind, I'm like, you're, you're going down, son. You know, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be, this is once in a lifetime. He's going to be this close or we may never even see him again. Or another hunter may kill him before we ever get a chance to hunt him again. So I'm like, I made the choice to shoot him that night and put him on the ground without getting him on video. And it stinks, but you know what? He's on my wall and, uh, it's a dream come true. And, uh, like I say, I probably deer hunted, I'm guessing 30 some years. I'm a self-taught deer hunter. Um, I watched a lot of videos back in the early nineties from Buckmasters to Realtree, Primos, Drury. I'm sure there was others, you know, hunter specialties. Yep. And I never knew that deer like this existed, you know, as a deer hunter. You know, back in the day, you know, I would have been 25 years old probably when I was starting to watch those videos and stuff. And the information, and I remember I'm a self-taught deer hunter, so I didn't have anybody to like teach me when to use a grunt tube or when to rattle. And I did, I learned all that by watching these videos and then going out into the timber and making all my mistakes. And so, so back, back uh on the story of killing the deer you remember how i said that doe came down the lane and then he was back there in the brush about five yes. minutes or so my knee-jerk reaction was to grab the grunt tube and do something and i said to myself you know what you've screwed this up before by doing too much you've you've rattled at the wrong time <laughs> you've grunted at the wrong time i had the doe can in there from primos i thought maybe if i just hit that one time it'll It'll suck him out of the timber. And I just said, for once, would you just sit here and just let nature play itself out? You've got the best decoy you could have. You've got a hot doe. She came right yeah. down in front of her. Just don't screw it up. You, everything's in play. And that's, that's what I told myself. Just don't do anything. Just let this thing unfold. If 20, 30 minutes goes by and you don't see him, then maybe hit a soft grunt. Maybe hit the bleat a little bit. But with him up in our grill like that, I mean, he was right underneath us somewhere. I just couldn't see him. And so, you know, I'm going to say there's 10 or 12 things that I could list down that all had to happen to kill this deer. And if any one of those 10 or 12 things didn't happen, we wouldn't have got him. From finding the shed, the planting the food plot, to mowing that lane, to creating that staging area, to putting, it was our first year to use the, the tacticams where we could get the pictures sent to our phone. That was a game changer for us. Um, to getting the crossbow dialed in, you know, there was a lot that went into this. And then obviously, you know, just being in the right spot at the right time. Uh, because I'm telling you guys, when you if you'd have seen this property, you would have not bought it for deer hunting. You just wouldn't have. And, you know, lo and behold, we created the food plot. We gave him seven or eight acres of a reason to come in there and walk just walk up to the edge of the timber check out the food plot see what's going on and he did so right in front of the blind and but i had no idea when i put him down uh you know when i got him down on the ground the the ride that it would be from there on out sharing the story you know i'm glad you guys reached out um we've done some stories for for other publications and and buckmasters just recently awarded us deer of the year with it and we'll be taking it down there to their expo in Alabama here in August to put it on full display down there. And, uh, you know, as a self-taught deer, all the mistakes I've made early in my career and 
some of the bigger bucks I've missed and all that. You know, when when the, when the chips were down and when it mattered most, I put the shot on the biggest buck I've ever seen in my life, and and I didn't mess it up. And that's well, uh, that that's to me that's enough. You know, yeah. whatever other mistakes I've made in the woods or whatever other deer I've missed, you know what? I don't even think about it anymore. It don't matter because when the big giant came out and gave us a shot, we kept it together and we got him on the ground. So. Uh, it's just it's just amazing and it's it's an honor to you know represent uh represent him because it's not something i want to hide or not tell people about i mean he's a he's a true freak of nature he's a free range whitetail here in uh, you know kansas and uh not something you're going to see you know i've hunted my whole life and probably seen a 185 and a 190 once in my life i don't know Honestly, don't think I've ever seen a 200 plus inch deer. I definitely have never shot one. And then this dude ends up in the 235, six range, you know, Boone and Crockett. Uh, it's just crazy. Well, congratulations again. And just to remind everybody, this is a deer that had uh, more than 20 scoreable points, 230 net, even for Kansas, an absolute monster. Um, more impressive is your story about how you laid out a game plan to get to the point where you could even get a shot at him, considering you had a small piece of woods, vast acreage of cropland. So, so Darren, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the, on the podcast. I know you got a lot going on in your farms right now. So, uh, and for everybody that's listening uh, to the podcast today, um, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Bow Hunting Podcast. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.